I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Semper Reformanda Radio. Um, it's been a while since we've been back on the on the show. I know we've been on a little bit of a hiatus for these past couple of weeks, and uh, we've been I've been on vacation, and Tim's had a lot of stuff going on, so I haven't been able to really focus on that. But I'm really glad to be back on the show with you guys, and uh, to talk about some really important stuff once again. And I've got a our special guest with us, Hiram Diaz, once again. And really look forward to talking to him again about his article. And But before we get into that, I do have a few, just a few administrative announcements for folks. Um, we've had some questions about how to maneuver on the website and how to get to the podcast. Uh, so we are on iTunes. You guys can, you, if you want to subscribe to any app that you use, the, the podcast app, the, you know, c- CastBox, whatever you want to use, you can use it. You can search for us. Uh, our the name of the podcast is Thorn Crown Network, and so all the podcasts are there on that down that one feed. So you can uh, subscribe to that one podcast, and you get to you get all of them. You get Semper Reformanda Radio, you get the Protestant Witness uh, with uh, Pastor Hines, and uh, Radio Lux Lucid with Steve Matthews, and all and you know the the two podcasts that uh, Brother Kaufman does on church history and Roman Catholicism and all that stuff and the, the eschatology stuff. So uh, just you, you can search for us and, and find us there. Also, some so regarding the website, we're still kind of working things out. It's a little bit, uh, we're, we're still kind of trying to figure out the, the tags and how to best categorize the, the content that we have there. So um, I know some of the pages, they limit the, we have Squarespace and so some of the pages are limited by displaying at most 20 items. And so we're still trying to figure out a way to be able to display all of the, the previous postings. And so, but if you search for something, it should come up. The search is comprehensive on the website. So the search is actually uh, works pretty well. It's just that some of the pages, um, they don't display the full history of posts. So just something to keep in mind, but you should be able to find it if you search for it. Um, and with that, so... I thank you all for joining us once again. Um, I've got a, some really 
exciting news that um, we hit it off. If you listen to our previous episode, uh, when I interviewed Hiram Diaz on critical race theory, um, had a really good time doing that, really enjoyed it. Uh, we really hit it off and we have a lot in common with Hiram. And so um, he's slowly climbing up the ranks in uh, in our network and Semper from on the radio. And so we're really excited to have him on board with us and hopefully be more of a regular participant. And so I'm very excited to to continue um, the discussion with him. Uh, he's very knowledgeable. If you listen to the previous, I think it was episode 103. Um, if, you, if, you, if you go back and listen to that, that's the first part of this interview. We're going to kind of pick it up where we left off from there and uh, continue some of the, the main points that he covers in the article. So uh, without further ado, Hiram, welcome back to the show. Um, yeah, it's good to have you back on again. So I know last time we talked a little bit, uh, there's like six key points to uh, critical race theory that Matthew Mullins was uh, providing. And we only covered like two of them. So I want to finish those, those main points, because I really appreciated how you gave a kind of of a a running commentary on that. And so let me we, we did the first one, uh, the race is a social contra- is a social construct, and so I I think we skipped the second one. So let's jump over to that one. Let me I'll just read it and then you can uh, go ahead and give your comments on it. Um, let me get here. We go. So point number two is racism is structural. Mullins explains that for CRT or critical race theory proponents, racism is thus not only treating someone badly because their skin color is different from yours. Racism is a huge, complicated historical system. It is the very way our world has been organized over time to empower folks who came to understand themselves as white and to subjugate those who fall outside that category. So you care to comment on what he's saying there? Yeah, well, basically, uh, the way that we normally view racism is that a person who's racist is basically showing favoritism toward one group of people and showing animosity in other words, hatred toward another group of people based on skin color, and usually have other stuff mixed in there with skin color, like culture, language, um, things like that. And there are also presuppositions about the people who you are showing antagonism toward. You know, so there's a superiority of one group of people uh, based on phenotypical features, like I said, skin color, and those associated cultural things. Uh, and that's that's basically how we understand racism that's how it was understood all the way back in the 50s and 60s uh, with the original civil rights movement but with the advent of postmodern philosophy or the infiltration of postmodern philosophy in things like critical legal studies and with critical race theory uh, racism was expanded to mean not just those overt actions but also things as basic as uh, what kind of what kind of reasoning you use right so we as clarkians we employ deduction and we, we employ what the secularists and other people, unfortunately, would call, quote-unquote, Aristotelian logic, right? Well, for critical race theory, uh, logic, because it comes from, or because it was articulated and uh, developed by white Europeans, beginning with Aristotle and his progeny in the medieval era, because of that, logic and logical analysis, deduction, even induction, even uh, probab- uh, probabilistic, quote-unquote, logic, things like that, are all part of the white supremacist system. So structural racism goes beyond just, here's the police, uh, 
you know, it goes beyond what you see in things like Black Lives Matter, where they're saying, well, the structure of the legal system is bad. Okay. That's one part of it. But even that's too superficial because it goes beyond that. It goes beyond, it goes to the level of saying that logic itself is a construction of white European males and it's a way of oppressing people who have a different way of viewing the world. So racism is structural goes all the way down to that level. Um, although people won't talk about it that way, but this is, this is where it really goes down to, you know, you have people like, you know, we talked a little bit about Al Mohler. Um, one of the things that he said in a, in a video you can find on YouTube, and I mentioned it in the last time, uh, the last podcast when we met, where a student asked him about his take on social justice, and he says, well, I'm not, he basically says, and this is my summary, or my paraphrase, obviously, he says, I'm not with that as far as the secular version goes, but we do need to oppose white supremacy because there are instances of white supremacy. And he's basically agreeing with the social justice warriors and the CRT people, critical race theory people, that there's such a thing as structural racism. Well, if he knows his stuff, if he knows his philosophy, he'll know that this goes beyond just um, an institution that has historically opposed people through indirect means, like uh, laws that would exclude people from advancing, let's say, right? Because this is what you hear about all the time. This is on the surface level, right? People say, well, you know, why is it that this person uh, who's Mexican, let's say, goes to jail for five years for having a nickel bag of weed, and this white person who's raped somebody only goes to jail for a week. You know, to some extent, that, that is what they're concerned with. But philosophically, epistemologically, in terms of worldview analysis, it goes beyond that. And the structural aspect goes way beyond just the external stuff that you see. You know, for for the proponents of this, it goes, like I said, down to the the very basic level of even logic itself, even language itself right language norms speech norms those things are instances of racism so it goes deeper than just the superficial stuff that you see right it's it sounds just so insane you just triggered another college experience that i had <laughs> um, yeah it's funny because i was taking i took a a a, a writing class and my professor was she was an older older woman and she was a postmodernist. And it was interesting because I was critiquing postmodernism and she really didn't like that. She gave me like a terrible grade and and I'm pre I was pretty much the, her best student. And but she gave me a horrible grade because she didn't like that I was attacking postmodernism and then she accused me of imposing my western understanding of logic on others, you know, like okay, so using these rational thought is considered oppressive like i mean i guess to an insane person it would be but what do you what does that even mean that's just so that's so ridiculous um and and you know in the popular media i know that this is where you get a lot of it right because they say you can be a racist without even realizing it apparently like you you just by participating in the system um, you you become an implicitly uh, what is it called like you, you you implicitly consent to a system that is partial to others and 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 this disenfranchises others right other minority groups or whatever and it's like okay folks you know and and this is one thing that really triggered me when I was listening to the Mar the MLK 50 conference and that that was just something that I I, I, I was about to blow a fuse because people 
just have this victim mentality. And it's like, when are you going to take responsibility for, for your own self, you know, for your actions? Like, when are you going to take responsibility? Why does it have to be somebody else's fault all the time? Like, when is something, when is something going to actually be for you to just, you know, I get that there's a oppressive, there is oppression and there are certain things that happen like that. I get that. But, um, to the extent that these people talk about, like they're basically blaming everybody else but themselves. And it's like, it's your life. You, and it's not like you don't have the means to overcome. There's plenty of stories of folks that have come out from really horrendous situations from the ghettos and all this stuff. And now they're very successful people. And this country is one of the most, uh, the, one of the places on the planet that most enables, that most empowers people to do that. And so, you know, but this, this, this theology of victimhood makes me so nauseous because they try to find ways to accuse, you know, the, the, the majority group of racism. However, in, however they can possibly try to pin racism on somebody else for any little thing that goes on and, and to, to make minorities feel like they're being abused or they're being taken advantage of. I mean, it's just, it gets taken to a point where it's just beyond ridiculous. And that's, you know, like the Black Lives Matter stuff that we talked about a little bit on the on our first part, too. I mean, it just it, it, it's so out of control now. And the fact that this is in the church coming from somebody. This guy is a professor. Where did you where did, was he? South, Southeastern? Yeah, Southeastern Baptist. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he's a professor in a seminary and is promoting this trash. Like, are you serious? So rational thought is a is considered oppressive now, and you're a Christian. Like, what? What do mm-hmm. you? What is this? This is just madness. Um, yeah. Well, they they buy into the whole different worldview, and that's the reason why you know I wrote the article. What you're talking yeah. about is because what's really going on at at a more basic, deeper level. Like I mentioned, it's it's not just the political stuff. You know, it's a whole it's an entire epistemology. It's a philosophical way of looking at the world. That is completely anti-Christian, but these guys, for some reason, have latched onto it either because, you know, maybe they're not regenerate believers, you know, maybe, you know, they're just professing the faith, but they don't possess it. I'm not saying that that's the case, but, you know, maybe that's the case. Um, maybe it's because they haven't really thought through the implications of what it is they're espousing, mm-hmm. you know? Right. But but it's completely at odds with Christianity, you know, because you were talking and you're saying, like, uh, when is when is anyone going to take responsibility for their behavior? Mm-hmm. Well, what they would tell you is that the reason why you're saying that is because you've bought into the dominating cultural narrative and you are, you are thinking in categories like responsibility, individual responsibility, which comes from a Western mindset because Western philosophy and Western civilization has put an emphasis on the individual, whereas Eastern cultures and, you know, places in Africa and traditional uh, indigenous cultures put a focus on the community. So even when you say, when is, when are you going to take responsibility for your actions? They'll say, well, that's, you know, that's just your Cartesian Western influence way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, you yeah. can't win. It's absurd. Yeah. It, it's absurd, dude. You know, it, it reduces to power. Yeah. Because you know? basically, what can you do at that point other than bash each other's heads in with clubs? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, for, for all the talk of wanting to be civilized and wanting to get rid of what they call a, a hegemonic culture, that suppresses all of the cultures and, and is violent toward them. Well, when you get rid of rational discourse, what do you have left? Yeah. You have Insanity. abject violence and, and tribalism, which is the same thing that they're trying to say they're trying to avoid. Well, you can't avoid it by doing that. 
you're going right back into it, you know? Yeah, they'll, they'll always try to find a way to one-up you somehow. It's just insanity. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that, that's very good. Um, the third point, colorblindness is a problem, not a solution. We talked about this in the first part. So if you want to go back and listen to our, our first uh, episode on this, um, I, I suggest that you do that and kind of get the background to this because we, we, co- we kind of tore that one apart already. So... Let's jump over to point number four, which is, I'll read it here real quick. Um, Interest convergence, not pure progress. Mullins relays that interest interest convergence is the idea that dominant groups only acquiesce to minority interests when those interests converge with their own. End of quote. In other words, CRT proponents believe that at times changes in society affecting racial groups are wrongly identified as progress when in reality they have only come about because they change because they change because the changes that are in quote in the best interest of the dominant culture not because they are truly just fair or best for minorities huh. so what's he saying there we're all just a bunch of uh we're all just a bunch of opportunists or what essentially that's what it is yeah you know and that and the irony too is that okay well you have this worldview that says there's no rational discourse. There is no universal uh, story that explains all things. Meta narrative, right? There is no way of of forming a hierarchy of values, of truths, and things like that. And then they'll they'll come out with this here, which says interest convergence, not pure progress. Well, how can you progress if there's no way of establishing a hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? You see the contradiction there is. Well, you don't want to pro- you don't want to help people progress. You just want to you know. Uh, do what's best uh, do what's in your best interest well isn't that all that we have left right if you get rid of the idea of transcendence you get i get rid of the idea of hierarchy of things being better than one thing being better than another one one culture one way of looking at the world being better than another one then all you have is interest self-interest and interest for your group so this is a contradiction in terms of the values that they hold but again is contradiction something bad well they'll say that's only because you're you're following Aristotle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> wow. So this is why they they can hold these these contradictions in their own mind because who are you to say that the contradiction is a bad thing? Right. As if logic applies only to us and not to you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. insanity. And this reminds me. This really reminded me of uh, of when I studied when I first started to study Gordon Clark and the the. I don't know if it's a philosophy, but the concept of egoism, right? And and it's I, I guess it's one of the basic economic assumptions uh, to uh, certain forms of uh, economic um, philosophies. But because a lot of people denigrate the the concept that all actions, all all of our actions are self interested in some way. Um, I think I heard Robin saying that, right? Have you have you looked into that? What they've talked about with, regarding egoism, uh, Clark and and Robbins, I heard a, a, I heard Robbins talk about something in a lecture, and I remember being taken aback because I was like I told you before in the last one, I, because of where I grew up, because of the cultural values uh, values that were instilled in me. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. We we value community over the individual, right? And that was just the thing that I took for granted. And then I listened to John Robbins saying, "Well, look at what Jesus says. He says 
what profit is, you know, what is a profit a man? Exactly. If he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul, he's like, he's appealing to self-interest. And it just blew my mind. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, wait a second. Is the son of God appealing to self-interest? Exactly. Yeah. So in in our culture, there tends to be like a cultural taboo where we think that self-interested actions are somehow bad. And it's like, they're not inherently bad. They're bad if you if you trample somebody else to get to it or to get it. I mean, yeah, that's bad. That's sinful. But uh, all actions being self-interested, that's actually an economic uh, axiom, I think, that um, is biblically uh, justified because we as humans um, and, you know, all of our actions are as rational creatures. We do things that benefit ourselves and those whom we love and, and that kind of thing. Of course, it shouldn't be at the expense of somebody else. Um, but it sounds like these people are saying like, you can't, you can't help that. Everything is always going to, if it's benefiting you, then it's benefiting the people you represent. And so that in, that in essence is going to violate or, or, or you're going to level down somebody else's, uh, value or whatever. Right. And this actually reminds me of another economic theory that I studied in college as well. I keep going back to my college days. It's so funny. Um, because <clears throat> there's a there's a economic theory I don't know if you're if you're familiar with it called world I think it's called world systems theory and they say that <clears throat> that uh th- this theory basically suggests that if you have a very affluent country like America and we have a lot of of affluence here and a lot of resource consumption so all that resource consumption other countries have to pay for it and so we are because we are so affluent and so wasteful and, and use up so many resources as a country, other countries end up having to pay for that. And so that's why basically it's our fault that countries like Africa are, are in this dire state that they're in because we keep taking their resources. And, and you know, you know what I mean? So it's like it's like a everything is there's a limited amount of resources and everything that you use somebody else is going to be disadvantaged uh, if they're not in the same country that you're living in or whatever. And so this kind of really just, you know, it's interesting because, and it's sad because people who don't have hope in God, you know, if you don't trust in God, well, that's all you, all you have is what you see. And so it's a very, it's a very uh, carnal, it's a very you know, empirical, sensual way of looking at the world. Like it, what we see is what we have. And, but the Bible that contradicts the Bible plainly because Jesus said, seek the kingdom, seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. And so, and I really appreciate that about Robbins as well. He has a really, in in his economic writings, his political writings, he says that because you embrace the countries that embraced Christianity tend to be more prosperous and that's historically verifiable that's actually true like australia and like america and a lot of the countries that haven't been christianized or that haven't been uh that haven't embraced the gospel they tend to be they tend to languish in a lot of uh poverty and and you know unrest and things like that and so um that's a very interesting uh that's a fascinating topic in and of itself but yeah and you know this is just, this is only, we've only covered what, like three point, four points now? I mean, how, how much worse is this going to get? 
right yeah. so um well you, you know just to to continue talking about interest convergence and not pure progress yeah. is something i wanted to add there uh something that you'll notice with with critical race theory and social justice is there's always a questioning of the motives of somebody there's nothing that's superficial right like and by right. superficial i don't mean it in a bad way i mean just like the surface level right mm-hmm. so this is why when uh you know someone who's white somebody says hey you're racist and they say i'm not a racist i have a lot of black friends and they'll say see the fact that you said you have black friends proves that you're racist <laughs> yeah. the, the reason why always one up you yeah, there, there's always, like, you, you never get out of being racist, mm-hmm. right? You never get out of being sexist. You never get out of being, quote-unquote, homophobic or transphobic or whatever. And the reason why is because, um, philosophically, again, in the background, you have the assumption that the idea in the, in the Enlightenment where you can speak directly what it is you're thinking and represent what it is you are and what you're experiencing to other people, in postmodernism, that's completely done away with. So everything is subtext right instead of it being the text that's being spoken what's really being communicated is the subtext behind this wall of culturally acceptable terms and culturally acceptable linguistic norms and um, part of this derives from not only from um, Frederick Nietzsche but also from uh, Sigmund Freud right when Sigmund yeah. Freud talks wow. about the, the, the subconscious and the unconscious the id the ego etc right mm-hmm. the super ego well, yeah, what you have in, in Freud is well, when you're when you're involved in discourse every day, in society, you can't talk about the base animalistic instincts that you have that you want to act on, such as murder, rape, incest, all those things. So what you do is you find ways of talking about other things, but if you look close enough through uh, linguistic analysis or uh, you know psychoanalysis is what he called it, then you'll see what the true intentions are because they're hidden, they're lurking in the background, and these are the people that contributed to critical race theory. Sigmund Freud, Frederick Nietzsche, these wow. people who rejected the idea that you can be honest ever about what you are because always in the background is lurking. Uh, what's lurking there are the hidden intentions, which are always violent, the will to power, the will to dominate, the will to destroy. Um, you know, and it, the people, so the people who are promoting critical race theory now who are Christians need to come to grips with this. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's one, of, that's one of the reasons why they can say, critical race theory people can say, well, you fought for the rights of black people, you know, hypothetically, right? Uh, you fought for the rights of black people to get, let's see, uh, to be able to vote. And they'll say, yeah. But the only reason why you did that, they'll say, is because you benefited from it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, is that really the case? Is it is it really the case that just because you can correlate the benefit of the people who promoted uh, black people being able to vote and you know you can correlate the movement uh for blacks to vote with the benefit that the whites receive from that is it really the case that that's the reason why they did it no that's fallacious reasoning you know what i mean mm-hmm. but again if you're saying it's a fallacy it's probably because you've been indoctrinated by aristotle in the western tradition right so. yeah there's always something that they, there's always something that they'll one-up you with that's really interesting because um uh oh gosh what were we just talking about i went blank um Uh, sigmund freud yeah unconscious yeah okay right 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 so and it's funny because freud and and nietzsche like hello these guys were not upstanding christians at all you know so they were 
fiercely opposed to Christianity. I mean, come on. How, how are you going to be able, how can you reconcile these people's philosophy with Christianity? You can't. It's impossible. And um, and we, we already we already showed that. Like, you clearly showed it in the article, and we, we already showed that in the previous episode. Like, there's no way this stuff you can be reconciled with Christianity. And it's, an, it's interesting, too, because... To some extent, I guess you could, because we're Calvinists, you know, we're we're reformed. Uh, there is an element of truth you could say to to Freud's um, the fact that all men are by nature depraved. They're all depraved. They're all wicked. They're all evil. Uh, every you know, there's no question that the Bible categorically condemns all human beings and as being naturally evil. But what they deny, they 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 deny God and regeneration and so in denying that you are denying the fact that people can actually be transformed by god and regenerated by god and have pure motives and so they'll always just assume but no because they did not because they literally deny the power of god in salvation and in regeneration they don't they're not christian you know just just so in case people didn't know that they're not christian and so they deny the regenerating power of the spirit operating in Christians that enables us to actually have pure motives even though they may be still tainted with sin and and I'm not saying we're perfect or anything but we we are enabled we're given a new heart and and that's a fundamental Christian doctrine and aspect of salvation regeneration that's that's a primary doctrine right there Uh, you can't deny regeneration and and still be a Christian like that's that's just completely uh, at odds with scripture so um, well, and there's, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off if I did. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, there, there's another thing because you'll have these guys who claim to be Calvinists and they'll say, "Well, the noetic effects of sin, you know, and the effects that sin has on your psychology means that you can, you can be the kind of person that Freud is talking about. Well, you know, where everything that you do has ulterior motives that are bad, and it's like, well, that's that's not really what's going on with the doctrine of total depravity, right? The idea is not that. In every single instance with our neighbor, we're you know we're seeking to devour them and destroy them. Right. No, our our, our primary opposition is to God. It's total depravity. So that means that everything that we do, even if we have good intentions, which we can, and you know if we were unbelievers, we could have good intentions, but the the good is only for our neighbor and for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And the sin is turning away from God and not being thankful, like it says in Romans chapter one, not acknowledging who God is not being thankful and worshiping ourselves and worshiping creation instead of the creator. The idea is not that we can never have pure motives. You know, we can, but the, the purity isn't the purity that God, God's love requires, right? It's, it's pure in the sense that what we're saying is what we mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so the, the guys who are Calvinistic trying to smash together the doctrine of depravity and Freud, that's what they're completely getting all messed up, you know? And it's it's evil that they're even attempting to do that because they're not the same thing, you know. Uh, right. I remember Gordon Clark in one of his lectures, he talked about how Freud had a better anthropology than somebody else. I forget who it was, you know, because he said Freud at least recognized that man is wicked, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And he was right, and, and we can agree with Freud on that point, like you said, and we can agree with Freud that uh, that we do sometimes, but not all the time, but sometimes we do uh, conceal ulterior motives under, you know, under a, a friendly face under amicable speech right right we we say one thing and we mean another like in the book of proverbs you know, the lord tells us that um that the wicked man you know he 
he uh, signals with his hands and he shuffles his feet and he speaks one way, but in his heart, he's another way, you know? Yeah. You can do that. You can do it, but but nine times out of ten, we're saying straightforward what we mean, you know? And when we're not doing that, it's pretty clear. But for Freud and for the critical race theory people, that's what's always happening. Even when you think you have pure intentions, you're basically the puppet of your cultural assumptions and the culture that you live in. Yeah. Historical period. Right. The, the, we're perpetual hypocrites. And mm-hmm. that's a sad state of affairs because if everybody's a perpetual hypocrite, then everybody's going to hell because the number one sin, uh, and, and I would say the number one sin that Jesus despised more than anything was hypocrisy and especially religious hypocrisy. And so we all have a serious problem. If, if if what they're saying is true that we're all just perpetual hypocrites then <laughs> then that means we're all going to hell cuz uh that's that's like the that god hates that pretty much more than anything else uh, especially religious hypocrisy and and I'm really glad you brought up the 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 issue of total depravity because I know people that's a misnomer that people think that it means that you're completely wicked or that you're as bad as that you are as you're as bad as you can be that's not what the doctrine means, like you were saying. It just a better term is radical depravity, which means uh, that you are, every aspect of your being is corrupt. It's all sin is tainted every aspect of your being. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be, um, or that we're all as bad as Hitler is. It just means that we are completely affected by sin. And yes, as unbelievers, all we do is wicked, and all we do is sin because. Even the like the Bible says, the plowing of the wicked is evil because it's going against God and you're not acknowledging God in what you're doing. And um, it's there isn't just the letter, but also the spirit of the law that you have to take into account. Like Jesus said, if you lust, you've already committed adultery in the heart. There, there is both that you have to take into account. And so um, that's that's a very helpful distinction and important. Like these people are, you know, they're denying that and and this is one thing that is so is always fascinating fascinating me about the bible and about god and about christianity is that it has a perfect system of checks and balances there's like book and doctrines that always help you to 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 show you that if you're going too far in one direction another doctrine is going to suffer for it and that's one of those things that when you emphasize depravity so much to the point where you say that everything Christians do is still sinful, then you're actually undermining God's power. Because you're saying that God is not doing what He's promising to do when He gives you a new heart and causes you to obey Him. Because you will be able to obey, even if it's imperfectly, even if it's not fully perfectly the way Christ did, but He will empower you and enable you in a progressive, sanctifying uh, walk through his with his spirit living in you he will enable you to walk more and look more like christ and so um, that's a very important distinction and difference that you see very clearly between critical race theory and christianity and it's again not surprisingly a fundamentally it's a primary issue you know we're, yeah, we just talked is. about regeneration you can't deny regeneration and call yourself a christian and you can't deny total depravity either I mean, exactly. it's those are radically fundamental doctrines of the Bible. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. well, and even consider this: like we haven't talked about this, but this is something that needs to be brought up to critical race theory proponents and social justice warrior 
you know, ism proponents, is the idea of, like, look, if, if that's your view of communication, then what do you do with the scriptures? What do you do with the doctrine of infallibility, with the doctrine of inerrancy? Uh-oh. What do you do with the doctrine of the purity of God's word? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You what know, do you do with that? oh, because man. If, if the writers of scripture are men, women, or, you know, presumably all men, right? But, you know, just for their sake, we'll say men and women or whoever. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, if they're all humans like ourselves and all we can do is communicate, you know, uh, this admixture of wow. some good stuff on the surface, but really some really evil, nasty stuff underneath it, then the writers of scripture are not going to be any different because they were fully human. Wow, that's so a scripture, good point. Scripture is corrupt too. You can't have an infallible, pure word of God. You can't have uh, proper exegesis. You can't have proper hermeneutical methods. And this is something that actually postmodern theologians, believe it or not, there is such a thing, uh, have emphasized. And this is why they go to things like process theology. They go to things like open theism, and they, you know, they become syncretists and inclusivists because they deny that you can communicate clearly. They deny that the writers of Scripture are inerrant and infallible and those guys the postmodern theologians are only a stone's throw away from the guys who are promoting critical race theory all you need wow. to do is take a few steps and you're in that camp you know what i mean so wow it's inconsistency by the grace of god that these guys haven't gone that far but that's only a matter of time it. yeah it's a matter of time yeah that's 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 a really that's an excellent point and it's really disturbing because <laughs> that is they are denying that literally then if you're going to be consistent then then yes you would have to deny the doctrine of of uh infallibility and inspiration of the bible because if god moved holy men to write his words down and he had to use human instruments and those humans are always flawed and they're always wicked and they're always perverse then that means that they must have inserted some of their own wickedness when they were writing out the bible I mean, that is so disturbing. And there you, here we have yet another cardinal Christian doctrine. You have the infallibility and inspiration of the Bible. And if you deny that, you're no longer a Christian. I mean, you're a liberal. That's what the liberals do. Liberals deny inspiration, not, not sound Orthodox Christians. I mean, that's the foundation of all of our belief. I mean, you can't, once you deny that, you, you have, there's no stopping you. Um, I mean, Wow, it's, I don't know how much worse it can get, but I um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point. Um, yeah. Wow. So let's jump over to the, uh, where are we, point number five now? Um, let's see. Yeah, I think we're in point number five. So point number five is whiteness is normative. For CRT proponents, whiteness has come to seem normal over time, making everything else non-normal or other. To put it another way, whiteness and everything associated with what being white has become the standard for how a person should be. CRT criticizes the idea that we can be neutral, objective, or colorblind when it comes to race. If we are trying to be neutral, then we are inevitably reinforcing the status quo, or the norm, and the norm is to live and behave like white people. Wow. This sounds like number two, actually. A little bit like number two. So what are they saying there? I'm saying whiteness is normative. Like, uh, I wish I could I could give like a a glossary of these terms, like these keywords, because normativity is definitely one of those words with the postmodernists. Uh, because again, there is no transcendent truth. There's nothing transcendent. So what you have are norms, 
you know, culturally constructed ideas that become normative. They become the ruling ideas, right? They become, um, you know, in, in in Reformed theology, we have scripture, which is the norm of all norms, right? Scripture, mm-hmm. uh, scripture puts everything in its proper place. But with CRT, postmodernism, the normative things are the products of society, right? So whiteness being normative, like you said, it ties into uh, structuralism, mm-hmm. or, you know, number two. And the idea there is that, again, white European males have become dominant in terms of the way that they think. And those those ideas for the postmodernists for critical race theory, those ideas are not, they're not normal. They're not natural, we should say, right? They're not inherent to the structure of what it means to be a human. They're imposed upon other people group when, let's say, the Greeks conquered the Persians, right? We'll say, well, if the Persians start thinking like the Greeks, it's because they've been forced to, because they've been submerged. Their culture has been consumed, basically, and they've been forced to assimilate to Greco-Roman culture or Greek culture or whatever. And so whiteness has become normative. It's mm-hmm. become it's become the thing against which people are compared, right? So the ideal of what it means to be rational is going to be a white European male. The idea of what it means to be uh, attractive is going to be a white European male or female. The idea, and you you see some of this, some of this is actually the case, right? When you have a dominant people group in a culture, typically what's considered beautiful is going to be what's going to match up with the dominant culture, right? They have the loudest voice. They're speaking the most. They're producing the most aesthetically. So they're going to have a a bigger influence. Um, But this goes beyond just aesthetics. This goes, like I said, to reasoning. It goes to, uh, you know, uh, ways of looking at the world in every case, epistemologically, historically even, right? So, yeah, there's no neutrality. And as Christians, we believe that there's no neutrality, but we believe there's no neutrality toward God, right? We don't believe that right. there's never, there. we don't believe that there's always a lack of neutrality when we're communicating with other humans. This ties into what we were talking about with, uh, quote unquote, pure intentions, uh, pure motives and uh, interest conversions earlier. We don't believe that, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, yeah, we don't. we don't believe that there's no such thing as objectivity in terms of, um, looking at ideas and analyzing ideas. Otherwise, we couldn't reason, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we believe that in terms of our relationship to God, morally, because of the fall, we're corrupted, and there's no neutrality in that sense. And I say this again because there are some Calvinistic guys pushing CRT, and there are some Vantillian guys um, who are Calvinistic, Presbyterian in some cases, um, who are utilizing... The idea of non-neutrality in order to support this kind of nonsense. That's not really? non-neutrality. Yeah, that's not what non-neutrality is. And this is anecdotal, so I don't have any names off the top of my head. But I've come across people who are saying, well, what about the fact that, you know, there's no such thing as neutrality? Doesn't that tie into uh, how we communicate with each other or how uh, how we view the world as a whole? It's like, that's not what it means. <laughs> you know wow. what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's not that we don't have racial neutrality, but that we don't have... Uh, neutrality when it comes to logic or mathematics um as regards our relationship to other people it's as regards our relationship to god everything we do as a fallen human being is colored by is biased by our attempt to suppress the truth and unrighteousness that's what it means but can we have an unbiased view of x y or z as 
you know, in our relationship to one another? Yeah, of course you can. Right. Otherwise, you could you couldn't even make the claim that whiteness is normative or that it's not normative or that there's neutrality or there's no neutrality. You have to have neutrality at some at some level, right? And it's there. Um, yeah, right. So so it sounds like neutrality in the sense that there's it applies to both, you know, to to everybody. Like mm-hmm. it's not something. Yeah, right. So like it's funny because logic. contrary to what they would say is actually normative or neutral in that sense, right? Because logic applies to everybody. It's not something that you you can opt out of. And so, so yeah, that, that makes sense. That's helpful. Um, Yeah. Like just to give you an example, like one of the things, so here's an example, right? If you go to New York where I grew up and you see uh, people of Arabic uh, descent arguing with each other in the street, let's say they just moved to America from, you know, from the Middle East. Um, you would think, because of your cultural background, you see them as fighting, getting ready to kill each other, let's say, right? Right. Worst case scenario. But if you come to know them as a people group, they are, they're just having a disagreement. Yeah. It's just the way they do things. It's a yeah. cultural difference, right? <laughs> and yeah. in, Puerto Rican, in Puerto Rican culture, like my culture, um, you know, loudness, I don't like it, but I know that it's part of my culture, and it doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't always signify something bad is happening. You know, it could be it could be excitement in some cases. It could just be a way of communicating and trying to emphasize your point, right? Right. So if I were to come along and say, well, you raising your voice in order to emphasize a point is morally wrong, that's the kind of thing that they're talking about with normativity. Whiteness is normativity. Right, because right? it's not that, what white people was, do. Yeah. Yeah, and that, quote, unquote. That's a super... That's a superficial level that we can agree to. We can say, yeah, it'd be wrong to say somebody's sinning just because they're not doing something in a way that you like, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what they're saying. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond that to saying, well, certain moral commandments from God are the product of white European interpreters. Wow. Yeah. So if, if you go along, this is the reason why there's a double standard in some cases when it comes to when it comes to social justice kind of stuff, right? When people say, like, if you were to say, um, I don't know if remember a few years back with James White, when he criticized a, a young black man who was being disrespectful toward police, mm-hmm. and everybody spazzed out. They're like, you can't say that. You can't. You right. Can't. Especially because yeah. he's not black. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because that's part of it. And the other part of it is you don't know his background. You don't know where he comes from. And so you can't subject him to the same sort of criticism that you can subject your own children and your own people to right yeah because if you subject them to your criticism then you're imposing this norm this this set of norms on him that don't apply to him right and you're a white guy so this is excuse me this is you making your whiteness normative for everybody else yeah yeah and that's the kind of thing they're saying and like i said that's terrible at at a superficial level it it makes sense like the, the two people arguing in arabic yelling at each other and really what they're saying is you're dumb. You shouldn't have parked in that spot. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's okay. We understand. Like I shouldn't impose my my understanding right. of what it means to, to have a decent argument with somebody on them. But they're going beyond that. They're saying, like I mentioned, criticizing somebody for something that's obviously immoral. Well, you're immoral for doing that because you're imposing a set of standards on them that doesn't apply to them. So, yeah, that that's that's really interesting. This this so i've even heard that um i I don't remember where i heard this and and i I don't i'm not saying it's like a it applies to everybody but i've heard 
I've heard the I don't remember who said this but I've even heard that when Arab, when you have Arab or I guess Middle Eastern people in a debate um, yeah. they tend to view the the person who was most expressive and most like projecting the most as the person yeah. that won um, yeah. Even if it, there was no, if his arguments were worse or whatever, they tend to view the one who is more, you know, animated as the the one who has the upper hand, I guess. And so, um, yeah. and you know, I, I don't know how I haven't witnessed that personally or whatever, but yeah, you know, I had an Arabic mechanic who who was he, he would have a very like he would come off strong you know <laughs> and yeah, I, I wouldn't mind it because i'm i'm middle eastern myself i, I, would, I wouldn't mind it i, I just, but it's funny because you know it's just different ways people express themselves or whatever but um yeah as a side note i heard this funny story from a comedian he said uh, he's talking about living in the city he's like look if you want to know when a person uh, a person of middle eastern descent is angry at you that's when they're being nice to you, when they're talking in a very soft tone. <laughs> it's like, they're like, my friend, my friend. He's like, then you're in trouble. But if they're yelling at you, then they're cool with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, th- this brings me to another point with respect to... Oh, gosh, I went blank again. Can I make another comment on Yeah, that? yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, this is something too. Like, if you if you pay attention to popular discourse on uh, the idea of um, trans, you know, transgenderism and homosexuality, if you say that um, if you say that homosexual relationships are wrong, that they're unnatural, and you say that transsexual or transgender uh, individuals are doing something wrong with their bodies and with the way they identify, they'll say, well you're imposing a heteronormative standard on us. Mm-hmm. You see how it's similar? Yeah. Right? It's, you can't it's judge anybody. You can't, yeah, nobody's wrong. Everybody's right. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do what's right in their own eyes and because there's no, like like you said in the article, they, they deny essentialism, so there's no universal norms of it at all. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, this, okay, so this is what's so disturbing i can't stand this because you like you said it's a very clear double standard because they hold the people who they hold the majority group with one standard but then they like black lives matter especially you see this so strongly with groups like black lives matter because they don't they don't they assume that because you're oppressed or whatever that you can't be guilty of racism yourself or of making denigrative comments or you know to other about other people groups when that's obviously not true i mean in fact what's so ironic is that black lives matter are some of the most racist people that i've seen because it's like okay why are you going after all these you know white cops killing black people when that's like a very small percentage of how black people die why aren't you protest protesting the abortion clinics because that's the number one cause of like black people dying abortion clinics it's black people doing it and what about black on black crime like those are the two main if i remember right the statistics those are the two main causes of of black people dying and it's like the white cops the percentage of white cops shooting black people doesn't even add doesn't even come close to the number of deaths 
as a result of aborting babies and black on black crime. And you don't, where do you see Black Lives Matter in black neighborhoods where the violence is so prevalent and, or, or abortion clinics? They're not there because they're the liberals who are promoting that same agenda. And so it, it's so disturbing because you, you really see the hypocrisy come out in this point. You know, like they're so radically hell bent on blaming somebody else. When in reality, if they looked in the mirror, they would see, hey, why don't you look at what's really going on and stop blaming everybody else for your problems? You know, it's like, um, and I know people, men, people saying that they'll be like, well, you're not black. You're not allowed to say that and all stuff. You know, this is this is this this kind of attitude is precisely the this is what fosters the tribalism that you were talking about earlier, that it 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 alienates people so badly because now you're not allowed to talk about anybody else that's not exactly like you and nobody's exactly like you and so you basically cut off rational discourse you you eliminate the ability for people to have rational disagreements that are different from you and say you know like it it, it's so this is what destroys literally destroys societies because a nation divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided, that was what Jesus said. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If there is no unanimity of thought, if there is no universal consensus about some things, then you no longer have a nation. It's going to crumble. And that's what you see happening in America today. I mean, it's so bad now that everybody gets offended about everything and you can't talk about anybody else because they're not exactly like you, and so you're not allowed to judge or whatever, do anything that because you'll be crossing the line. And th I can't stand that because that's in order to go forward, you have to, um, you have to enable that. You have to enable that discuss that ability to have rational discourse and disagreement. That's that is fundamentally what it means to be a civilized society. In order to be civilized, you have to be able to respectfully disagree with somebody else who has a different perspective and do it without shooting or killing each other or about or without yelling at each other you know violently opposing each other you know that's like that is what it means to have a rational a uh, civilized nation a society where you can disagree without killing each other so and sadly crt is propounding they compound this error a hundredfold because of those because of these ridiculous hip hypocritical double standards that they impose on people on on the the majority group but not on the the minority group um so ugh, wow i mean okay so now looks like we're finally at the last point and <laughs> boy i i this is wearing me out just <laughs> just how this is so this is so bad uh, but i'm really yeah. glad we're getting a chance to really unpack this because um it, it's just showing how bad it really is and how how bad it, it, how utterly contrary to the fundamental doctrine, the cardinal doctrines of Christianity. Um, so the, the last point here is point number six, which is intersectionality. And and we talked about this a little bit before, um, but here uh, it's as Mullen states, intersect quote, Mullen's, inter, inter, I'm sorry, as Mullen states, quote, intersectionality is the study of how different identity categories overlap, end of quote. Consequently, quote, proponents of CRT who study intersectionality 
typically believe that people living in, in the intersection of multiple oppressed identity categories face unique forms of discrimination that require equally unique forms of defense. And so I wanted to ask you this. It's a springboard of what kind of goes off of the previous point, because it's like, what is the point of them pointing this out? You know, it's like, what, what, are, what, are, they, what are they saying? Like, what's the end game? You know, like, are they saying, what are you supposed to do? If you're a white person and, and you're, not impl- you're not explicitly racist, but you're participating in the system, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're, you know, an accomplice or you're, you're guilty by association just because of who you are and so what's the end game like what are you supposed to do are you supposed to pay people are you supposed to pay the minorities some kind of stipend or fund like what what are they suggesting or what are they getting at what they're getting at is an elimination of laws that and rules and quote-unquote norms that apply to everybody at all times and in all places that's that's really the gist of it because the assumption again behind it is anti-foundationalism, anti-essentialism, anti-meta-narrative, anti-logos, Christ, uh, theology, and this is specific, if you look at the writing of someone like Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, mm-hmm. he explicitly opposes the idea of the logos, or the logos, however you pronounce it, uh, who holds all meaning and all things together. Uh, because they assume that, now they want society to fall in lockstep with that theorizing that they've done that makes any sense you know um wow. because in practice we're made in the image of god we know that there are categories that apply universally and we know that there are rules that apply universally we know these things because god has revealed them to us romans chapter one right he's made his moral his moral law known to us he's written it on our hearts we know it's right we know what's wrong um we know when we're breaking god's law we know when we're doing what's right, right. Um, but but when you have a worldview that says no, nothing is held together. Everything is just fragmentary, and it's all, it's all imminent, not transcendent. It's all horizontal, not vertical. Well, this is, this is how you want reality to look, right? So there's a conflict there between how things are actually playing out, namely with hierarchy, with, uh, with values that come directly from God. We see them around us. There's a conflict between those things, which are concrete and tangible, to use that language, that metaphorical language, and the philosophy of the postmodernists, which doesn't work out in reality so as a postmodernist what do you want to do as a as a good philosopher wants to do you want to impose your your will on the world right mm-hmm. you want to make the world according to your image and i think that's that's really what's going on it's a matter of your own selfish desires from yeah right yeah 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 it's it's a matter of eliminating those things now there are other people who have other intentions of doing this you know it, it i talked to a friend a long time ago about Taoism, right we were talking about Christianity and Taoism. He was saying, well, in Taoism, there's no judgment because, you know, there's a recognition of, of contradiction and oppositions. And, you know, there's a recognition that good and evil are basically part of the same spectrum. And I stopped him and I said, who do you think that benefits? Do you think that really benefits the guy who is working on, you know, who's who's working every day, providing for his family, who's under the thumb of an oppressive regime in China, mm-hmm. right? Does it, does it benefit him to think that good and evil are illusions? Or does it benefit the ruler who knows that there's good and evil, who's going to manipulate the people to do whatever he tells them to do because right. good they, and evil are just part of the same spectrum? It's going to yeah. benefit the person with power. You exactly. Yeah, because they won't be motivated to change, to, 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 to protest or to... On what basis are you going to protest it? If there's no good and evil, then on what grounds are you going to say this is wrong? 
you know, exactly. oppression is wrong. Yeah. That's a very good point. That's true. Yeah. And, th- and that's the thing that's ironic about this, right? Is that postmodernists are yeah. saying, well, if you impose some sort of transcendent category of, of morality on us, you're oppressing us. Well, if yeah. I take it away and I say everything is allowable, everything's permissible, who does that benefit? It benefits the person who's going to come along and impose his will on everybody. Might makes right in that instance. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And this is this is why when Plato philosophizes about, um, you know, I think it's in the Republic. He talks about society and what's going to happen, and he basically says we started off with tyranny. It went to aristocracy. It went into democracy eventually, and democracy when everybody started thinking that their opinions and everything was equally valid. What happens is the tyrant steps in to reinsert order or to re to to reestablish order, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I, and there are some people who actively push for deconstruction, which is what this is: deconstruction of society, culture, language, everything, um, for the sake of establishing another power in its place. And the Marxists wanted to use deconstruction, wanted to use these ideas in order to establish marxism right and mm. up to a, a person that really needs to be looked at more is a guy named antonio gramsci or gramsci i've heard it pronounced both ways and he had this idea of cultural hegemony where it's the idea that culture has uh, culture functions in the place of let's say physical oppression right so this ties into whiteness being normative this ties right. into uh heterosexuality being normative masculinity being normative and being the you know, uh, male headship being normative. And he's saying, if we want communism to succeed, first we have to get rid of the ruling culture. We have to pull it apart. And we have to give people something in its place. We have to basically take it apart and give them something different. Right? Mm-hmm. And so there, there are people like Gramsci, Gramsci um, in politics who are trying to do that kind of thing. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's another end game. You know, philosophically, you just want the world to look like you. You want to impose your will on the world. Um, politically, it could be the case that people are promoting this because they want to establish a different regime. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and some people might say that's conspiratorial, but if you read the philosophers, you won't say that because this is exactly what they say openly. Yeah. Right surprise, I mean? surprise. I mean, right. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the, and the. I'm glad you brought up the concept of the moral law, right? Because there you have yet another very important foundational doctrine of Christian, of Christianity is, which is the moral law. You know, the moral law is the law that, that God instills a basic uh, concept of right and wrong. Every human being has that. And that's why we are without excuse. We have, we know enough about God to be accountable to him and of his law. So, um, the moral law is that standard which applies universally to all men at all times without exception. And so, in order for, so what they really want, like what you were just describing, what they really want is chaos. They want anarchy. They want no universal set of norms so that people can be held accountable to it because that would fundamentally undermine their 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 conviction that well, now you're going to set up a parent culture that's going to oppress everybody else because that's not like them. And so, and they would obviously say that imposing the Ten Commandments or or the moral law as uh, taught by the Bible and by Christianity, well, that's an art, that's a uh, Judeo-Christian Western uh, imposition of norms that is oppressing everybody else who disagrees with you. And it's like, man, 
that is insanity. That's literally what the, that that really is insanity. Like they want to get rid of all law. Like yeah, I mean, they just want chaos and I mean, that's chaos and anarchy. That's insane. And and of course, we know historically that that won't happen because what always happens is the king of the hill comes and he puts his foot down and he ends up uh, becoming the next tyrant. And so, yeah, and it's no, and that's exactly what happens when you see the LGBT agenda and how fierce they are in, in, in pushing all opposition and, and drowning the opposition, but with like, without any, uh, uh, without any remorse, without any, like, I mean, just like, just because if you disagree, just by disagreeing, they're already, they get fierce, they get so fierce that they put other Christians out of businesses, anybody who disagrees, who disagrees with them, they will put you out of business, they'll put you in prison, they will do whatever it takes, and that, and that, there you have it, like, these minorities are, that's another good example, right, like, the LGBT agenda is so fierce, and how it, persecutes and and completely up, uh, opposes and oppresses the those who disagree even if they don't disagree in a way that's harmful um or or you know that's that's uh sinful against them they will eat you alive and so yeah it's it's really disturbing because and and I know you know going back to the whole norms thing because I know in uh, th there's theological terms that I wanted to talk about a little bit and it and it's based again it's fundamental christian doctrines we're talking about moral law you know we're talking about universal standards that apply to everybody at all times that's what god is going to judge everybody off of at the very least he's going to judge you on that universal moral law that everybody at the core of it will be held accountable to and and not only that, but there's also the concept of, of in, there's a technical, there's a theological term called the, nor, the norma normans, which is the rule that rules, that is the scripture, right? It, the scripture is the norma normans, it's the rule that rules, it's the rule, that's sola scriptura, that means that as, as Protestants we believe that the scripture is the sole, final, infallible rule of faith for all matters, all matters of faith and practice for all matters of truth. And so the... The other term is the, the secondary term called the norma normata, which is the rule that is ruled. And those are secondary authorities like the creeds, the confessions, and things like that. And so Christianity is fundamentally at odds with what you're describing in the article. It is fundamentally at odds. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about regeneration. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about basic this is Christianity 101. I mean, it's not yep. some obscure, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it's mm -hmm. not some obscure secondary tertiary issue. It's 101 Christianity, the basics, the yeah. most basic concepts that this thing, that this critical race theory totally violates at just about every point. And I mean, wow. I, I feel, I feel terrible just, just, just just talking about it i mean just thinking about the consequences of that you know like mm -hmm. that would be that's like the worst possible thing that can happen i mean and if there could i kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier in the previous episode but if 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 there was if there was a complete opposite to christianity i'm convinced this would be it this and like satanism i mean these things go hand in hand
because it it utterly contradicts Christianity at every fundamental point, every single point that we've talked about. I mean, it's well, it's, it's disturbing. Interesting. If you if you look into and I did this a long time ago. This is a French philosopher, uh, Gilles Deleuze, and uh, he's a brilliant, or he was a brilliant thinker. He's wrong, but he's <laughs> brilliant. He's really, uh, really thought-provoking philosopher. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I learned from his writing that was, you know, even today it's profitable in terms of um, understanding certain philosophers of the past. He wrote like histories of different philosophers. <clears throat> Excuse me. But something that I always thought about was how, and this, in the back of my mind as I'm reading his books, I'm like, hmm, if you take this to this conclusion over here, what you result, what results is something similar to what you find in the Kabbalah or what you find in occultism, right? And I'm, I'm just thinking in the back, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm processing it. I'm like, there's a similarity here. So I look it up and I find out, well, lo and behold, one of the biggest French philosophers for postmodernism was influenced by what? By Kabbalah wow. and by occultism. And I found a book by him uh, in a bookstore not too far away from where I live. And I bought it because I'd never seen it before. It was him and some other philosopher. They were talking, you know, it's a, like a dialogue recorded. And one of the things he talks about is having admiration for Lucifer. Because wow. Lucifer broke broke against the order of the same, which is what they call it, right? Which is the, the hegemonic order that God imposed on everything. And so Lucifer serves as a model for how we should be philosophizing and thinking. And I'm like, he, he admits it. Wow. You know what I mean? Like he just says it straightforward. And you find it in different philosophers. Like you find it uh, in Karl Marx, the same sort of thing is written. And I think it was Richard Wormbrand who records Karl Marx's. Uh, he he documents Karl Marx's admiration for Lucifer um, at some later point in Karl Marx's life. Earlier on, he wasn't uh, you know, a proponent of some sort of nascent form of Satanism. But later on, apparently he was. So yeah, there is yeah. a, there is a connection there. Yeah, that's, oh, man, I'm glad you brought that up. So it is about as bad as it gets then. And what <laughs> yeah. on earth, what are Christians doing? Christian scholars and prophets, what are they doing pushing this stuff in the church as if it was gospel truth? It doesn't make any sense. And uh, uh, yeah, you uh, you know, there's a really good book uh, by Kevin, Con Kevin Swanson called Apostate. Um he talks about Marx there, and he sh he shows the letters that, and some of the stuff is that he wrote. This guy was literally possessed by Satan. Only the devil would say some of the things that he wrote. I mean, that guy was literally possessed. And well, look at um, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just gonna say that it, it's no surprise because this guy is responsible for some of the most. He's probably responsible for more killings than almost any other human being on the planet. He inspired the world's most notorious mass murderers in the history of the world. And hello, they, <laughs> Lucifer. I mean, I mean, wow, that is so disturbing, but yeah, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and another big influence on the postmodernist critical race theory movement, all that is Frederick Nietzsche. Yeah. And of if course. you know anything about Nietzsche, he was bitterly opposed to Christianity. And he even went so far as to call himself the Antichrist. He wrote a book called The Antichrist, where he excoriates Christians and Christianity. And he goes so far as, you know, he has another book called uh, Eche Homo or Eche Homo, which is right. Behold a Man in Latin, right? Where he is self-identifying as the Son of God in a blasphemous wow. way because he's doing it to subvert Christian morality. He even says that if we're going to succeed in society, we have to have a transversal of, or a trans... Uh, 
I think it's transversal. It's transversal of all morality, basically flipping everything on its head. You know, instead of searching for truth, you search for lies, or you value lies instead of valuing truth. Instead of valuing what's uh, considered good, you value what's evil. You know, so yeah. Nietzsche had a direct connection too, and it, it, it's my own personal opinion that Nietzsche was likewise possessed. Yeah. You know, no, and as a side no, note, I, I think it's incredibly ironic that he spent his life calling himself the madman, and he died as a madman literally it's as if the lord said okay you want to be a madman yeah there you go that's judgment for you man that's scary and you know the so there's really no this is actually true to say that in reality postmodernism is a manifestation of satanism because even in the book of the law the book that alistair crowley wrote Mm -hmm. um <clears throat> no, Aleister Crowley was one of the most notorious. He was a very notorious. Uh, I think he founded the Church of Satan. No, that was Anton Lavey, right? He founded the Church of Satan in '66. But um, he basically copied everything from Aleister Crowley. And yeah. Aleister Crowley, he wrote the book called The Book of the Law. And the the fundamental maxim of the Satanist is do what thou wilt, right? It's yeah. to do whatever you want to do. And mm-hmm. literally, that is what postmodernism promotes. I do what yeah. I want. You do what you want. You can't judge me. We're all relative. It's all relative that you you don't get involved. I don't get involved. That's it. And it's chaos. It's anarchy. It's do what you do what thou wilt. It's do whatever you want. It literally is a manifestation of Satanism. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm so glad that we're we're tying all this together because, you know, even the people that are talking about this, um, a lot of this stuff gets left out you know like it really is so much worse it is so bad and fundamentally antagonistic to christianity that it's a form of satanism and um you even have and i wanted you to talk about this a little bit um can you talk about the white gaze because i know we we kind of touched on this a little bit but there's also the concept of the white gaze and i haven't heard other people talk about this Mm -hmm. um but what does that mean the white gaze Oh, the idea of the gaze, uh, G-A-Z-E, the staring, let's say, the gazing of the other, uh, capital O other, it's an idea in philosophy that I think traces back to Jeremy Bentham, a political philosopher. Yeah, the utilitarian guy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he came up with the idea of what's called the panopticon, and the panopticon was a way of formatting a prison, or structuring a prison architecture, so that you had a person, or you had a, a viewing sensor in the middle, Right. And then you had the cells all around and the cells could be looked into from every angle. But no one in the cells, they could see each other, but they couldn't see who was in the middle watching them. Right. Mm. And the idea there was that if you're constantly being watched, you will regulate your behavior because, you know, you're being watched because that is something that we do. Right. There are things that you do in private that that you'll never do in front of somebody else. And they don't even have to be bad things. It just might be something weird. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, it might be something that other people think is gross picking your nose, let's say. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, you go to church, you're not going to sit there picking your nose. (laughs) But in private, you do it. But if you find out somebody's watching you from a distance, it'll it'll make you freak out, right? You're like, well, somebody's watching me. I'm not going to do this. Well, Jeremy Bentham takes that to the nth degree. And he says, well, criminals, if they're being watched all the time, they're going to change their behavior. And so the panopticon, the prison is structured that way. is It's a good idea because if if we know we're constantly being observed, regulated, we're going to self-regulate, right? Yeah. So that goes into something like uh, existentialism later on with Jean-Paul Sartre, where he says that 
where he basically says that human existence is completely free, and the only thing that prohibits us from being completely free is the gaze of the other, right? Somebody gazing at us and basically forcing us to conform to their assumptions about us. This is one of the reasons why Jean-Paul Sartre says, uh, hell is other people. That's one of his famous phrases. Mm -hmm. Because in hell, you're being tortured and... (laughs) It, it, it's so over the top and it's, it's ridiculous. It makes me laugh, but I understand what he's saying philosophically. Um, but basically, if somebody's constantly watching you, it forces you to, to conform to a set of norms, to not be yourself, and mm-hmm. it constrains your freedom, right? Yeah. So Sartre basically rejects God's existence on the basis of his idea of the gaze of the other. If God is constantly watching us, then we're not free, but we are free, therefore God doesn't exist. I mean, it's a terrible argument, but that's what he comes up with. Well, this ties into postmodernism because they 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 latch onto the idea as well and they they say well systems within society those are like uh they fall under the category of what michel foucault a french philosopher would call panoptic panopticism right it's basically panopticonicism you know the panopticon mm-hmm. of jeremy betham and the white or the gaze of the other from um jean paul sartre and uh, for foucault and for the postmodernists the institutions serve as the, that all-seeing eye that's constantly scrutinizing everything that you do so that you regulate your own behavior. And this comes forth in a book called Discipline and Punish by Michel Foucault. This is one of the the masterpieces of Foucault, right? This is his magnum opus, yeah. one of them, where basically he says, back in the day, torture used to be the way that we got people to behave. You put somebody on the gallows, everybody watches, and everybody says, hey, I don't want to be that guy on the gallows, so I'm not going to do it. Right, and we even have instances of this in Scripture. Right, you shall stone the person who's done X, Y, and Z, so all Israel will see, and that no will do that. Right, you can yeah. you conform to God's law on the basis of knowing that you will be punished. Well, Foucault says, as we progressed, we haven't gotten better, just because we have less violence. What we've done is we've suppressed that violence, and notice the notice the Freudian language here, right? Suppression, yeah. redirected of it, right? Yeah, we've redirected it. We have this libidinal impulse, as Wolf Ward would say, to exert violence on other people. But instead of doing it openly because we know it's not acceptable, right, the superego mm-hmm. is, is in play here. We suppress that and we come up with administrative ways of suppressing other people's freedom. We have, uh, we have specifically for Foucault, it was everything that you do in prison is according to a schedule. And you know this is the case. You watch a show on Netflix about prison life. Well, 6 a.m., they have breakfast, right? Mm. Then they go to their cell for an hour. Then they go to the yard for two hours. Then they go to, you know, free time for an hour and 15 minutes. And Foucault says, well, that's an instance of the gaze of the other, right? That's an instance of the governmental gaze, let's say. The institution is serving as a giant eyeball, watching everything you do, scrutinizing you on the basis of whether or not you conform to the norms. Well, all that ties back into the idea of white supremacy, not in the sense of neo-Nazis, but like we mentioned, white supremacy being uh, the dominant, quote-unquote, white values in a society being the norms, right? White normativity. Um, with the, the white gaze basically means if you're a person of color, everything that you do as interpreted by a white person is being scrutinized according to the standard mm-hmm. of whiteness. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, these are basically like repetitions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just just taken from different angles. So the white gaze is basically the same thing as 
uh, it's like the other side of white normativity. White normativity says, this is how things are. This is how you're supposed to be. The white gay says, you're not conforming to these things. And therefore, you are not part and you should be punished, etc. Right? And people don't, it's it's strange and it's philosophically convoluted and there's like a whole history there. And the only reason why I know about it is because I bought into all this garbage when I wasn't a Christian. Wow. Wow. But a lot of, a lot of people don't see it there because it's not their thing. You know what I mean? And they, they, you know, like I talked about James White, he didn't seem to know where it came from. Maybe he did. Maybe he was just being uh, sarcastic. You know what I'm saying? Maybe he was just speaking rhetorically uh, when he said, what is that? I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Um, but I know for a fact that a lot of people who've never heard of that before, and they might take it to be something that's actually legitimate, when in reality it's not. You know what I mean? It's just another uh, permutation of these philosophical presuppositions of this postmodern worldview as applied to society and racial relations. You know? So yeah. the white the white gaze is, is like that. And you also have the same thing, I should mention this, um, in feminism, you have the gaze of the male, or the male gaze, mm-hmm. right? And you can, you can apply that to anything, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, like, in 100 years from now, if we keep going the same way, I can say, well, the gays are the gay, or the gay gays, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I can say, as, as a heterosexual, I'm constantly being scrutinized by these standards of homosexuality that I can never meet up, match up to. And so... But yeah, in a sense, that's true now. And in a sense, that's true now. Like if you mm-hmm. if you disagree with LGBT lifestyle and homosexuality and all that, you are looked upon as some outdated, outmoded, bigoted, you know, you, you, you look they make you look like scum and they treat you accordingly. They will destroy your life. They will destroy your business. They will put you out of business, out of your livelihood, um, you know, and that's already kind of going on right now and you know there's a i'm really i really appreciate you giving us the history of that because there it's it has a very twisted sort of consistency you know like there's a very twisted but but it it, it, you can see the 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 flow of thought and how it's progressing or or digressing you know it just it's very twisted and just disturbing really um but and I you know it's interesting I didn't know Jeremy Bentham was he was the one who kind of started talking about that but um, and I know you know Foucault and 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 Sartre they, they were like I know they really kind of ran with it but mm-hmm. um, wow that's that's fascinating in a very disturbing way um, so yeah that's that's very helpful and I I really appreciate you kind of bringing all of that out um, this this stuff is so wow if people don't see this by now like. The, there's no hope for you, you know, like it's not that hard mm-hmm. to, to, to comparing the two. I mean, it's literally black and white. Like <laughs> this isn't difficult. You know, there's no gray area here. Like it's mm-hmm. literally black and white. It's uh, Belial and Christ. It is Satan and Christ. Like there's, it's God and the devil. I mean, it is that starkly opposed uh, to everything that is true and right according to the Bible. So, I mean, uh, you know, that was very good, very helpful stuff. Um, and so I wanted to kind of, I wanted to kind of close with this because this I thought was really interesting. Um, later on in the article, you say this, um, uh, you say CRT proponents see themselves, uh, as actively being committed to quote, expanding history, which is to say, quote, telling a more complete story of the United States history that many of us learn in school. They also, quote, critique colorblindness by, quote, 
focusing on revealing how stories, laws, customs, and decisions that seem to be neutral or colorblind are actually built on assumptions about race. End of quote. Additionally, CRT proponents seek to, quote, make the legal system fairer, advocate for voting rights, and change speech norms. Hmm. So, uh, give us a little color commentary, no pun intended, as to what they mean by all this, all this nonsense. Yeah, I was going to make a comment about you saying, well, it's all black and white. That's racist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. You, I mean, you could literally do that. With it's so ridiculous. Right? You know, yeah, and I, before you before you get to that, I, this reminds me of basically what, what these guys are saying, like Sartre and stuff. It's sort of like the philosoph- philosophical version of peer pressure, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. pure, it, it's like making that a worldview almost. Like, everybody... Everybody else's norms are imposed on you when they gaze upon you, especially the majority, uh, because you feel like you're being judged and you're being, a, you know, you're being like you want to be conformed to uh, this, this, this. You want to be whitemanized, you know, like and, you know, there is a sad history of that. That is true. You know, like the, the mm-hmm. there were some uh, missionaries who colonized other uh, minority groups when they, instead of evangelizing to them and preaching the gospel to them becoming like them becoming like paul said becoming all things to all men uh they ended up sort of colonizing them and mm-hmm. you know the same thing happened with a lot of the native american groups it's a, it's a very tragic and heartbreaking story because it really shames the name of christ and now a lot of these folks have very bitter antagonistic feelings against christianity because of what happened um that's not to say you know but that's kind of that's kind of in the past and i i know a lot of that now tends to be very you know like they say that it tends to be more subtle or whatever um because of that like you described that that bestial impulse to to be more overtly violent has been suppressed quote unquote Mm -hmm. um but but still it's it's really it's just a disturbing view of reality it's so it makes you want to commit suicide almost like it's so hopeless, you know, like oh, what else, what else do you have? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing there. I mean, there's nothing to hope on in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very depressing. And, and, and I, I'm not, you know, cause you talked about when you came out of that, like you were, it was very depressing and I, and I don't, it's yeah. Like, I don't blame you. I mean, what do you have mm-hmm. to live for? There's just, yeah. it's so nihilistic and, and brutal and, and, just ugly but um but yeah go ahead go ahead what what are they what are they saying here with the uh expanding history yeah 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 exactly yeah all that stuff uh expanding history really as far as i can tell really comes from foucault he was the main person doing his historiography um and basically what foucault was doing was well he was Again, criticizing the idea of meta narrative, criticizing the idea that you can tell any story from one particular viewpoint that explains every other point, right? So, history is always written from a particular perspective by the victors, and, uh, right? The... Yeah, that's the assumption the victors, right? Um, and uh, for Foucault, <clears throat> excuse me, what you what you need to look for when you're doing history is not what's being stated explicitly. Again, remember, there's the Freudian idea of suppression in the background working here, right? So for Foucault, who was a psychiatrist, who was... Uh, Interesting. Was, he was learned in psychology. He was learned in psychiatry. He was a histori- historian. He was a brilliant man. Um, 
but he was hopelessly lost without Christ. You know, so mm-hmm. his thinking was all over the place. But he was brilliant, and he understood um, Freud. He understood these things, and he puts them together. And so, what you have in Freud, and um, excuse me, in Foucault with historiography is this idea that you don't look for uh, what's being told to you on the surface. Yeah. In a history book, if you have the history of, let's say, no, even with with scripture, right? Let's say you have the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They'll say, well, that's just one thing that's being told to you. But let's look at let's look at gaps in the story that might suggest that something else is really going on. Let's look at the way they worded things here to see if really what they're doing is concealing something that doesn't look good on them. Right. Yeah. And let's see if we can reconstruct what's happening in the background. And sometimes that actually is the case, but it's not always the case. But for the postmodernists, that's always the case. Right. Right. It's always the case that there's another story being, being told. And there is no dominant story uh, naturally. Which um, is funny because that's, I just realized this, that's actually another contradiction because they would deny any kind of uh, norm, uh, they deny essentialism. And yet they say this is a universal, this is a universal aspect of human nature, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that, that's mm-hmm. a contradiction, uh, yeah, blatant is. contradiction. Uh, wow. But yeah, go, keep going. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to quote to you, uh, Gene, Gene Edward V in a book called Postmodern Times, A Christian Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture, because he really summarizes it well. He says, postmodernists also tend, also seek to dissolve history. They no longer see it as a record of objective facts, but as a series of metaphors which cannot be detached from the institutionally produced languages which we bring to bear on it. And this is from Foucault. Okay? That's my introduction. As a result... Mm-hmm. One postmodern philosopher says, we can make no distinction between truth and fiction. History is a network of language games where the criterion for success is performance, not truth. So there's no objective truth. History may be rewritten according to the needs of a particular group. And history, if history is nothing more than a network of games, of agonistic games, right? Agonistic meaning uh, it, it's from Greek, um, for, from Greek culture culture the agonistic games were like wrestling right sparring fighting yeah so if if that's all history is an agonist a series of a network of agonistic language games then any alternative language game that advances a particular agenda or that has success in centering institutional power can pass as legitimate history right so Mm -hmm. the idea here is not objectivity and that's the end of my quote and paraphrase because i kind of mix it together uh, for the sake of time but the agenda here is not just to uh, tell stories that haven't been told. Okay, the person with good intentions wants to do that, <laughs> hmm. per- and and you can do that as someone who's not a postmodernist. You can be a quote unquote modernist and go back in history and say, hey, wait a second, why is it that whenever I read about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., let's say, I'm just hypothetically making this up, you know, uh, they always say X about him, when I know that there are five or six documents that say Y about him. Mm-hmm. Why don't they ever mention the Y? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you can call into question the motivations for that. But again, it would be fallacious to say that's the only reason why history was written the way it's been written. But you could always object to the way it's been written and say, hey, we should involve these other things, give a fuller account of what's happened. But that's not what postmodernism is doing. I mean, that's the surface level. What's going on behind it is saying, I'm going to look all the way behind this. I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to rent, you know, the, the veil is going to be torn asunder. And I'm going to find, you know... <laughs> I'm going to find the man behind the curtain who's really pulling the strings here. And it's not good intentions. It's something bad in the background. So rewriting history, expanding history, has to do with that. It has to do with 
telling the stories of other people's, not from an objective point, from but from their point of view, which is going to be the, the point of view of the oppressed, the point yeah. of view of the embittered, mm-hmm. the point of view of uh, uh, another group that is still vying for power, let's say, right? All these things are counted as legitimate historiographies or histories. And so that's what they're talking about. And that comes from, again, from Foucault. Foucault dedicated a lot of his time to talking about the gaps in history and what was really happening. And some of it's enlightening. You know, He has mm-hmm. a series of books called The History of Sexuality, where he talks about Victorian England and ancient Greece and basically the history of sexuality, of sexual norms, and how uh, you know, in the background in Victorian England, you usually think that it was always it was really prude, right? But in, in the background of that, there was actually some raunchiness. Okay? <laughs> and it, you know, yeah. you come to find out like, okay, well, he was right. Yeah. And, you know, but that's, that's one thing though. You know what I mean? Right. That happens. Yeah. But, but that's not always the case. But for right. the modernists, that's always the case. It's yeah. You're always case. perverted. You're always right. And yeah. <clears throat> this is taking us back all the way back to post-colonialism again, you know, where mm-hmm. they, it's all about how these, <clears throat> these other, oppressed people groups and their and their perspective and and everything so yeah it's um what's interesting here is that uh um gosh i keep going blank every time i want to say something um expanding history so you, you were talking about expanding history and um gosh what was i gonna say expanding history and oh right so when it comes to history, you know, obviously history is always selective. You can't talk about, it's impossible to talk about everything that happened. It's always selective. And there's always a bias to the historian writing the history. Um, but what, with respect to how a Christian should view history, I really, I've always appreciated, this is one of the most enlightening things I've found from from Clark and the Trinity Foundation. Um, I've, I've always really appreciated this because... Uh, history is you you can't really apart from biblical history you can't really say that it's that it's gospel truth it's always um because it's not revealed truth and so um the best we can go off of is basically the biblical principle of by the mouth of two or three witnesses let every truth be established and so you can establish some some reliable reliable history with that principle you know of establishing two or three witnesses like who saw the event or whatever whatever happened um but it's not on the same level as revealed as revelation as the scriptures and so that we do know is authoritative history that's precisely and exactly what happened um because god is the one telling the story but apart from that it's you you don't you can only go off of, you know, the two or three witnesses principle of, of correlating sources and things like that. Um, but but there's also in a sense in which this is fundamentally opposed to the CRT mindset, because now you're saying, oh, well, God is imposing his view of history on us. And so, well, yeah, hello, <laughs> Potter, Clay, he's the Potter. Yeah. He's the one who made us. He has every right to do that. And so... But apparently CRT proponents would take major issue with that. Like, again, you can't be, it's fundamentally opposed to Christianity in every way. And so, yeah, go ahead. If you remember with the whole MLK 50 thing and the whole idea of um, making church culture more 
uh, amicable toward people of color, right? Um, one of the, you'll hear that, and it's like, okay, what does that mean? Right. What does it mean? Well, well, for some Black and Hispanic people, what that means is violating the regulative principle of worship. See what I'm saying? Um, How so? Has, well, with with uh, extra things added into the service. Oh yeah, right. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not talking about instrumentation because you know, that's a debate that people have instrumentation. But I'm talking about like you know. You know, anything that, that you can find within, let's say, and I'll talk about Hispanic church, in, you know, in primarily Puerto Rican church, you'll find, I don't know, I can't think of anything on top of my head, but some sort of practice that's cultural, right? Yeah. Well, does scripture command us to do it? No. Okay, then should we be doing it? No. But, you know, but someone will say, well, we're, we're Latino, so we should be doing this because it's our culture and if you don't let us do it then that's suppressing you know our culture right. it's like it's not how it works dude right you know <laughs> but that goes that ties into the whole idea of you know uh, god imposing things on people yeah like, if, if you try to say that the way you're viewing things according to crt is the way things are then of course you can come along and say and the way that you reform people who are primarily white right of european descent yeah, the way that you're doing that—that's just your white European way of doing it. That whole, uh, that whole regulative principle of worship—that that, I don't need to follow that, because that's your thing as white people. That's not mm-hmm. my thing as a Hispanic person, or as a black person, or as an Asian person. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, we've derived it from scripture. But then, if you really want to push CRT again, you can say, "Well, your exegesis is based on your white Eurocentric way of looking at the world." See what I'm saying? Right, right. So it just. Yeah, it just falls apart, you know. If you're going to say that the CRT way of looking at the world is the way it is, then you can't even have church service ordered according to what Scripture says. Because it's a norm. Yeah, it's a it's a norm. It's a yeah. regulative norm that you're imposing on the church, and because God tells you to do it or, or not do it, and so no, they say well, the, again, it's it's opposing basically every doctrine that you can find in the Bible. I mean, you. What, it's there's no stopping to this like there's no stopping point i mean it's unbelievable how mm-hmm. it's opposed at every single point it seems it's a and you know what else is interesting is that um it, what really disturbs me is how this is getting pushed in the church right because now you're they're talking about expanding church history and bringing in non-white or the you know the, the writers that you typically study in church history the the, the main guys like augustine and and the, the the reformation and all that stuff or whatever but then it's like so now they're talking about adding like it's just so and i've heard james white talk about this too and it's like you know I, the, of course there can be some value in trying to discover what other christians said there, the, of course there's value in that um but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we don't know what the truth already is. Like we already have the testimony of the church, the pillar of the truth, passing down the doctrines that they tried to preserve for the next generation. And so mm-hmm. it's not like we're going to learn anything new, you know, if, mm-hmm. if they said something, then we already have it because it would agree with the Bible. And if it doesn't, then it was wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. so like there's a really disturbing agenda there that they're trying to say, like, we need to stop listening to so much of the the dominant uh, people in church history and start looking at these other guys. Yeah. It's like, well, well, to what if, to what end? You know, like, are, are you trying to 
what are you saying? Like, are you trying to discover some other expression of Christianity that's just as valid as, like, what are you getting at, you know? Um, well, look at the movements that have happened so far, you know what I mean? Like, it, it hasn't yeah. just, it, it's one thing to say, okay, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people have had uh, less of a voice in terms of some something in church, let's say, like, whether or not there's multiple languages uh, used in a service, right? Or whether or not, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's certain outreaches to particular neighborhoods that happen. That's one thing. And I think that's a legitimate thing to talk about, right? Like, as a church that has, let's say, a whole bunch of people that are white, a whole bunch of people that are Hispanic, a whole bunch of people are black, the majority being white, but the, the next in line in terms of numbers being Hispanic, well, should you have a Spanish service? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Or should you have somebody translating? I mean, it's right. a legitimate thing to think about at some point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what was, I, I lost my train of thought. Um, but yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I hate when that <laughs> happens. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah, you were talking about uh, the norms imposed in the, the church, whether you should have language, you know, with oh, yeah, a yeah, specific yeah. language. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, yeah, like those things are legitimate. You can, you can, you can talk about those things, and they're, they're under the circumstances, as we would call them, like confessionally, right? Those are the circumstances of worship that are up for us to discuss so that we can order the church service. Right. Um, but, but the things that are going to, that have uh, taken off recently are what? The Revoice Conference with gay people saying they've been oppressed. Mm-hmm. Right, their voices have been suppressed in the churches. They in the church, been given a voice. Right, uh, trans transgender people have been given a voice in the church, and they need to be heard. Uh, women haven't been given the opportunities that men have had to serve in the churches, and it's like, dude, scripture tells you that men alone have the office of teaching. Right. Oh this boy, is, this isn't a sexist thing. Oh this is boy, directly taken from scripture. But what they want to do, like you said, is, you know, it, it's you can't impose that on me. And since right. there's no overarching system. There's no overarching meta-narrative, set of moral, set of norms. Well, I can go in and I can question anyone that I want to. And I can find a way to insert myself in there. And this is why you had, you know, with the MLK thing, to go back to that again. They were talking about Martin Luther King Jr. as if he was a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. Yeah. He wasn't. Point blank, period. Yeah, I'm oh, not even going to go into his, his immoral lifestyle. I'll just go on the basis of his doctrine. The man denied every cardinal doctrine of the faith. Yeah, kind of like CRT. <laughs> Yeah, basically you know so, what I mean? yeah but you see wow. they're trying to they're trying to expand church history quote-unquote expanded right you know what i mean like oh well he was a christian too like because he you know because he quoted jesus and he he wanted to love people and jesus is cool and he loves people so martin luther king jr was a christian it's like no he wasn't yeah he wasn't they you can try to twist history as much as you want he wasn't that's like me going back in church history finding out that arius was puerto rican and saying well, you guys got to slow your roll and call me a heretic, all right? Because that's my people, and I know how my people talk. And he was probably just saying something in a spicy Puerto Rican way. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's not the case, dude. He was a heretic. Point blank, yeah. period. Rank, you know I mean? rank heretic and right. a perpetual adulterer. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah th- that disturbed me so much. How they literally whitewashed pun intended they whitewashed this guy so badly because they had a q a session about it too they had a q a session and he said we want to be charitable uh we know we want to be honest but charitable and it's like nobody touched the fact that he was a rank perpetual adulterer and and even the movie selma illustrate uh, depicts it even in the movie mm. selma uh, uh, and that's not to say it was a Christian movie or anything, but even the movie, like, th- there's, there's, 
nobody's denying this, you know, yeah. except for those guys, except for the MLK 50 people. Like they totally swept that under the rug because it contradicts the fact that the whole reason they're having the conf- the conference in the first place. Um, and, you know, the fact that and and so here's what's so funny about it, because they want us. And that's not to say that Martin Luther King didn't have very good uh arguments from time yeah, to time like he, he made yeah, very yeah. valid and sound points uh mm-hmm. and used the bible to justify it but that's like thomas Paine using the bible to justify his argumentation for liberty in common yeah. sense the guy exactly. was a rank he hated christianity yeah. um <laughs> but that doesn't mean that doesn't make you a christian just because you use it to make a sound argument and mm-hmm. so MLK and and there was things that Martin Luther King said that were f- f- blatantly wrong like you know the the what did he say the the 11 o'clock hour on Sundays is the most segregated uh uh hour of of the, in the nation and it's like yeah. well but what are you saying are you saying that every church needs to have the token black guy in it now like what what are you saying that's not what the mm-hmm. bible teaches you know like yeah of course we should preach the gospel to every creature that's that to everybody we shouldn't discriminate the gospel to uh, selectively preach the gospel to some person and not another one but um you know and, and the fact that the guy wrote his doctoral dissertation uh his dissertation on on uh what's his name uh Tillich Paul yes. Tillich like the guy loved <laughs> but and, and it's like what do you he was yeah. a neo ortho I mean he was so he was a blatant liberal um yeah, and so who denied every cardinal doctrine just like MLK did. He denied the incarnation. He denied the deity of Christ. He denied practically every cardinal doctrine of the faith. And it's like, if this guy was honest, he would have stepped down the, from the pulpit because he was disqualified both in doctrine and in, in moral lifestyle. Yeah. And so this guy had no business being a pastor. But there was an agenda because he was anti-racism and, and going against, you know, he was, he he's perpetuating the the agenda that they like and so they're willing to overlook all of that and whitewash the guy literally so it's kind of like what you see happen sometimes sadly with even men who call themselves reformed and they look back in church history and they find uh, roman catholics you know yeah and they oh yeah they try to baptize them as christians because those people did good things like um, right like somebody that historically as a person i thought did good stuff was uh uh, I think his name was Bartolome de la de las Casas. Yeah, de las Casas. I mean, right. Yeah, he, you know, he stood up for Native Americans. He he opposed, you know, how the harsh treatment that they were experiencing. And I'm like, wow, that's that's cool, man. You know what I mean? He did something noble. He did something good. And I'm like, but you're not a Christian. You know what I mean? That doesn't make you a Christian, right? It doesn't doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't you make you a Christian. Did something very good, and I can support honoring you for someone who you know for what you did. But I, I can't just say, well, you're a Christian now because you did something that uh, that was honorable socially. Like, no. Right. You, you, can't, you, you can't revise history to do that unless you have a critical race theory way of looking at the world. Um, yeah, <laughs> But as Christians exactly. devoted to the truth, to him who is the truth, Christ Jesus, you know, we can't do that. Because it's yeah. not the truth. Right. You know, that's funny. Speaking of the Las Casas, I, I remember studying him in college and I thought it seems like he had a he may have had a born again conversion. Uh, because he had a very radical, like he came in like with a very conquering mentality, but then he, it seems like he may have had a, a you know, and I don't know that much about the guy, if he remained a Catholic or whatever he, mm-hmm. uh, he was, but um, yeah, he did have a pretty radical, like 
his his mind was radically changed when he realized like what they were doing was they are alienating and oppressing and destroying these people's lives um but but yeah aside from that um Mm. that doesn't make you a christian just because you stand up for other people who are being wronged or violated or whatever the case may be Mm. um what makes you a christian is believing the very things that mlk (laughs) himself denied and so you know hello uh the deity of christ salvation is by faith alone and christ alone i mean you can't call yourself a christian if you don't believe in that stuff and so um and i wanted to maybe we can close with this because one thing that really took my attention was uh changing speech norms and because this kind of this is one example that sort of ties into everything that we've been talking about right the white gaze like if you don't sound like a, a white person does and if you have this thick accent or um, a very pronounced way a, a very strong accent or, or way of saying things um, then that alienates you from the parent culture and etc cetera, etc cetera. so we need to be changing those speech norms so that we can make these other people feel more comfortable about how they talk or whatever right mm-hmm. and this is really interesting because I recently I recently learned this from Thomas Sowell and he has some great excellent material um touching a lot about he writes a lot about race and culture kind of like walter williams does and i think they're friends as well um but these these guys are brilliant and they're also black they are black and um they destroy just about every single argument that these crt people make it is fascinating to read it is very very educational very informative so i highly recommend to our listeners to check out their writings but Sowell said in an interview, this this really blew my mind because he said that the you know how some uh cult some some black people or some cultures they say instead of saying ass they say axe, um, yeah. and things yeah. like that. And so he actually gives the history of that, and it's really interesting because it doesn't originate with black people; it originated in some in some some part in Britain. It's like, so oh, even really? that, yeah, it's really <laughs> fascinating because even that, it's like you're treating it as if it's something to do with this minority group when in reality it came from somewhere in Britain. And it's like, yeah. man, it's just so ridiculous how far these people take this. You know, it's like, just what are you doing? And and his point was like, you know what? If you want to get ahead in this culture, just be educated. Just you need to educate yourself and learn how to speak in proper American English, standard yeah. American English. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that because that allows you to 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 move forward in society. So, um, and that's what I really appreciate about these folks is that you know, this victim mentality is only going to bury yourself in a deeper hole. You're not going to get. It's only going to hurt you more than it's going to empower you. So get over it, like get over it, stop playing the victim and take responsibility for your actions. And so, um, so yeah, man, this is, this was really good. I'm really glad we got the chance to really kind of dive deep into some of these topics that doesn't really seem to get talked about even with, and even amongst people who are sound and who are saying the right things. And so, um, is there anything else that you wanted to close out uh, the episode with? Yeah. yeah, I want to say some things um, and then give just a couple of book recommendations uh, sure. on the subject. Yeah. Um, well, first thing I want I want to point out was uh, earlier when we were talking about Satanism, the connection between Satanism, postmodernism, occultism, um, and social justice and critical race theory. Uh, something that people do um, 
in order to sort of uh, move attention away from the fact that there are connections there, they'll say, well, you're misrepresenting those people by saying that they're Satanists. Okay, we're not saying that they're Satanists. Okay? The, the point is not that social justice right. advocates and critical race theory advocates are Satanists. The point is that the underlying way of looking at the world has roots. <laughs> Using their, their own arguments against them, yeah, implicitly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, right? Yeah, the, they may not the be underlying... aware of it, but it, that's what is. That's what the devil said. I mean, you're but saying yeah, the same you, thing. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. I, I wrote an article years ago called, and you can find that in my blog, indospec.org. It's, it's called the, the, I think it's like the biblical roots of postmodernism, something along those lines. And it's basically Genesis chapter three and me saying, look, what they do in postmodernism is exactly what the serpent did in the garden. Right? Yeah. As God really said. Right. And then he goes to the woman. But does he tell the woman? He says, did God really say that? Or, you know, or is he trying to withhold power from you? Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's the real meaning? What are your liberties in this society? And who says that you can do X, Y, and Z? And it's like, right. seriously? Who cares what and God fo- says? Yeah. Yeah. Focus on your sensations. Focus on your ability to interpret the world as you see fit. You go, girl. Girl power, feminism. Et right. Um <laughs> Which yep. I think is implicit there, like a radical form. Um, but yeah, just to clarify that, this isn't conspiracy theory. It's not saying that every person who's a critical race theorist is underneath, like they're having child sacrifices somewhere right. in some university. They sub- but but they, they, they subscribe to the same philosophical views, the same yeah, convictions. The same philosophical assumptions that are there. Right. Do what you will and do not be oppressed by anybody and anyone, even God. Exactly. If, if they tell you to do something a certain way, they are your oppressor and you need to fight against them. That's satanic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that needs to be said. I think, sadly, I think a lot of times uh, in order to try to sound reasonable to the culture that tries to reject the reality of spiritual warfare, a lot of times we don't talk about these things, you know, but there is a direct connection there. And Paulie, and this is something I, I benefited from, from John Robbins and Gordon Clark when they talk about spiritual warfare. Yeah, they make it known very clearly from the text of scripture that the spiritual warfare is primarily ideas, intellectual. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's intellectual. Exactly. It's the truth of God coming against the lies of the enemy, and the truth of God in apologetics is demolishing those lies and establishing the truth according to scripture. Um, and but that's spiritual warfare. Like right. we don't have people crawling on the ceiling with you know spinning their head around and throwing puke everywhere like in The Exorcist. That's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is the stuff that we see going on right now. People claiming to be Christians. And coming in with postmodernism and trying to infiltrate uh, Christian theology, Christian morality derived from the scriptures with postmodern theology, right? So, right. Lest, lest you or I or anyone at you know at Thorn Crown Ministries or anyone who's supporting this anti-social justice movement, lest we be mischaracterized, you know that needs to be said. We're not conspiracy, you know, we're not a conspiracy theorizing. Um, yeah, good, good point. Now, and that's not to that say I have in mind are there's a there one secular book and two uh, Christian books. The first book is called Postmodern Theory, and it's by excuse me Stephen Best and Douglas Kellner. And that book is really good in terms of giving you an overview of postmodern theory. And by that it means um, these guys they look at the big hitters in postmodernism, and they look at their metaphysics or epistemology. And they look at how those tie into uh, social theory, basically, you know, when it comes to politics, when it comes to cultures interacting, things like that. They give a very detailed view of that. That might be advanced for some people, but I think it's it's worth uh, it's worth stumbling through and, you know, trudging your way through. 
because you will learn a lot because these guys don't have a Christian bias. Right. You know, Interesting. If, if you're concerned about that, they're telling you straight up, this is what postmodern is, is seeking to do. This is what critical theory, critical race theory is seeking to do. And so that's a good book, a good reference book. Uh, in terms of a good Christian book, I quoted some of it earlier. It's Postmodern Times, a Christian Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. And that's by Gene Edward Veith Jr. And I found mine at a, at a thrift shop of all places. Um, but you can probably find it on Amazon. <laughs> and it's published by Crossway Books. It was published back in the 90s, 1994. Um, which means academically it's up to date, <laughs> more or less. Um, because ideas in academia take a longer time to trickle down. And stuff. Right. So yeah. The stuff the stuff he's talking about is going on right now. There are whole sections where he's talking about race relations and things like that, and the gender war, you know, sexual revolution and all that stuff. Um, in addition to that, there's also a book by uh, Calvin Beisner. I believe this. I, I always mispronounce his name. Is it Beisner or Beisner? I think Beisner. Yeah. It's Beisner. Okay. By uh, Dr. Beisner, and he was kind enough to send me a copy of it not too long ago. Uh, nice. Interestingly, I have a friend who went to the same church as him in Florida, so he knew him personally. Uh, he said he's a really cool dude. But anyway. Uh, Very cool. He, yeah. He has a small booklet called Social Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice in Gospel. And basically, the book is saying social justice is not biblical justice, and here are the reasons why. And if you think that social justice is the same thing as justice, you're going to wind up confusing law and gospel. So you not only lose a proper, a proper uh, biblical uh, juridical philosophy or jurisprudence philosophy, but you also lose the distinction between law and gospel. You know, so this ties into again the cardinal, central doctrines of the faith. And uh, Dr. Beisner, he does a good job. It's it's really good because he goes over some of the main passages that uh, social justice warriors. And social justice advocates to be nicer to them. <laughs> they try to use yeah. like the idea of the Jesus and the returning ruler, uh, the sabbatical year law, the jubilee year law, the sharing of the goods of the Jerusalem church. He goes through and the Pauline collections actually, so that there might be equality. These are sections of scripture that social justice advocates will twist to try to say that it proves their position. And he goes and he shows contextually this is not the case. It has nothing to do with what they're teaching. So it's mm. a really good book, and then he defines justice biblically. And if you want just like a really straight-to-the-point text, I'd say you start with that one, you know, because he, he just hits it out of the park with that. You know, it's very short, and it's to the point, you know. But those other two books that I mentioned are also good for uh, more in-depth understanding of some of the stuff that we've been talking about here today. So, Excellent. Yeah, it's good stuff. Hiram, thanks for that. And... <clears throat> um, I wanted to touch on a, just a couple points and then we can close it out. Um, okay. So with respect to, uh, we talked a lot about, you know, the spiritual warfare aspect and obviously, um, and I think you would agree with this, we're not saying that a lot of, when people say, talk about spiritual warfare, they tend to primarily associate that with uh, exorcisms and demonic position and all that stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, there is that aspect of it. But primarily what we're saying is, primarily the battlefield is the mind it's the yes. intellectual sphere because um <clears throat> and that's what we're wrestling we're wrestling against principalities and spiritual uh things in high places but that the way it manifests itself see this is what people don't realize when the devil operates it manifests itself in the intellectual battlefield of the of the battle of ideas that's where the battle primarily takes place 
And so when you start disagreeing with the Bible, you're going to subscribe to something that's fundamentally at odds with Christ. Because if he said, if you, uh, he who is not with me is against me. So if that's fundamentally antichrist, that's fundamentally satanic. And so to do whatever you want, instead of what God says, that is satanic. And so, um, because that's what the devil did. He wanted to do whatever he wanted to do and not listen to God. And so, um, that's, that's what we're saying. And that's where the battlefield takes place. It's in the mind. It's in the battle of ideas. And so they, they tend to think like, oh, well, the satanic stuff is only tied to spirit, you know, child sacrifices and stuff like that. Well, child sacrifice can take place in different forms. If you don't teach your child the truth, Mm -hmm. that is a form of child sacrifice because you're handing them over to the devil to do it for you. And so, um, that's what we're saying. And even, even, Christ himself, he told the Pharisees, your father is the devil. Did they think that? No, of course not. They said their father was Abraham. They said their father was Moses. Mm -hmm. But Christ rebuked them and told them, your daddy is the devil. And so that's what we're telling these critical race theory proponents. I'm sorry, but what you're saying, your philosophical father is Satan. Because that is exactly what the devil did. He questioned God and he said, do your own thing. And that's exactly what they're saying. And so that's what we're telling CRT proponents. Okay, look at your philosophy. It comes from Satan. Therefore, your philosophical father is the devil himself. And you need to stop pushing this stuff in the church as if it was Christian or compatible with Christianity because it's not. It's fundamentally at odds at every cardinal doctrine that the Bible teaches. And so I want. that's what I wanted to kind of to close out with and Hiram I really appreciate you coming on with us man I really look forward to the future discussions with you and having you on as as more as a regular and it's been really a blessing to have you on with us man I, I really appreciate uh, the work you've been doing the, the the background and all the studying that you've done um, I, I really think it's going to be a tremendous blessing and um, addition to what we to what we promote as uh, people who follow the Bible scripturalist and and all of those things so I'm really grateful for you, uh, for you know, having the interview with you, and um, I look forward to to the future with with our future discussions and all of these things and MLK 50 conference and all the race stuff and uh, all of the other stuff you've written about as well with uh, that we kind of touched on earlier with the uh, annihilationism and just there's just so much that that we can get into that I really am looking forward to in the future. So, Same here, um, Thank you. yeah, definitely, definitely, it's great having you on and. Um, Thank you all for staying with us this long and and for listening. And so uh, we'll we'll end it with that and we'll pick it up next time. Uh, Thank you. Thanks again. So God bless.